Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Do you guys ever uh, end up kind of sideways where you're sort of like looking at your life and you're like, how did I end up here? Like, how did I get here? What am I doing with my life? How did this become what my, what, how I live my life? I feel like I'm like that talking head song, you know, where they're like, you may ask yourself, how, is this my beautiful wife? You know that song? Anyway, uh, that's kind of like how I was thinking heading into this. It reminded me one time of actually when uh, I was camp hiking and uh, I got lost, which I don't know if that's ever happened to you guys. Uh, it was actually, I was with Josh. It was probably his fault from the beginning, actually. And we were on like a three-day hike and uh, we're wandering around. And uh, it was kind of a poorly marked trail. And uh, you feel like when you get lost, it should be like in the movies or like in old fairy tales where like one path is really dark and spooky and one path is really like bright and sunny. And you're like, which one should I go on? And then you take the dark and spooky one. And you're like, ah, I'm lost, right? Like, but that's never how it happens, right? You're hiking, so you make a million decisions every day. Like every time you're like walking down the path and you're like, is this the right one? Is this the wrong one? Most of them are right. One of them was wrong, right? And so we start marching down this path. All of a sudden, the path starts getting smaller and smaller. All of a sudden, the path starts disappearing appearing, but we think, well, maybe it's just overgrown, right? How bad could it be, right? So we keep on walking, walking, walking. Then we get to a point where we are, like, fully confident of the fact that we're lost, but we start, like, scheming, like, well, technically this whole loop is like a circle, so if we just keep walking, we'll hit the other side, right? Mind you, there's, like, 12,000-foot mountains in between and everything like that, and, like, impassable ravines and stuff like that. Then it became, like, a movie, where we're like kind of like wandering around. At one point, for whatever reason, I was standing on one side of a valley and he was on the other. And I was like, how'd you get over there? And he's like, I don't know. I remember distinctly laying on top of a big like red rock kind of boulder, you know, and I'm laying there staring up at the sky and I hear this like eagle like up in the sky and it's like circling over me and it might have been a vulture and I'm really not sure. We had a serious discussion about which one of us would get eaten first, like if we if one of us had to eat the other one to survive. And I decided it was me for two reasons. First, I have significantly more meat on my bones and would think would be like more tender, I think. But second and most importantly, I was tired. I was like, fine, eat me, I'm done. I, I want you to go on, live to tell our tale kind of thing, right? That's how it feels in life sometimes. I feel like you get sort of like slowly pushed off course. And we like to think of making these huge life decisions and getting off course as if it is that kind of like, do you take the light trail or the dark trail, the spooky one or like the bright one? That's not at all how it happens. You just sort of make one small decision and then one small decision, one small decision, and all of a sudden you end up lost. And it takes a lot of work to sort of like reorient and to get back on the path. And man, as I was thinking about it this morning, like that idea that like because you're in a circle, you might could just cut across the loop that is so false when you're lost on your trail is the same one that we typically apply to our own lives as we're trying to like get reoriented to living the lives that we want to live, right? We're sort of like, well, I'll just, I'll push through this. I'll get past this. If I keep on walking in the same direction, then eventually it'll take me to where I want to go. And that's not at all the case. That's not how life works. So what I want us to do today, I'm going to ask you to like, you know, open up your minds just a little bit. You're only here on Sunday mornings for just like an hour, maybe an hour and a half, something like that. And what I want you to do is actually like allow yourself to think about your life, to take real stock of it, to ask yourself where you are, where you're going. I know it's scary. If you have an emotional breakdown in the middle of the gathering, that's okay. Just from this question, right? Because it can, you know, the anxiety kind of, right? Like ask yourself, like, are you living the life that you want to live? 
Are you doing what you want to do? Are you actually living out the purpose that you intended to live out in life? And the reason why I feel comfortable asking that question to myself and to you all is because I believe that Jesus answers it here in this passage today. Especially for us, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you would call yourself a Christian, man, it's easy to make this big decision in your life. Like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. Maybe it's not an easy decision, but like it feels easy looking back. Like, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to commit my life to following him. And then you wake up one day and you go, well, yeah, maybe that's like still a part of my life. Uh, Maybe it's something that I do, but is it really like what your entire life is all about? That's what Jesus is talking about today. How would we actually live if that were the case? How would we get back on the path? How would we reorient ourselves to the only real way in life? If you've ever asked yourself, I love Jesus and I believe in him, but what do I do now? This is Jesus' answer to this question. And before we get to that, Jesus takes a shift here. If you've been following along with us in Matthew, Jesus takes a shift here from talking about the work that he's been doing to talking about the work that everyone should be doing. In fact, you can see this in the text here. The uh, people that are following around Jesus, he typically called them disciples, a.k.a. mathetes, or followers. And now he shifts to calling them apostles, a.k.a. apostolos in the Greek, or sent out ones or messengers. Check it out right here. This is in verse 10, 1, 2, and 3. It says, And he called to him his disciples, 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles, there's the shift, are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and, his, and brother, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 guys began it all, and for their reward, they get their name put right here, which is kind of crazy if you think about it, right? Like, these were just sort of like normal dudes that Jesus chose to be his followers first, and then his messengers later, and then they get their names tracked in Scripture throughout all of history. You've got tax collectors, you've got zealots, which probably refers to like him being like a political rebel of the time, so uh, this guy was probably some sort of reformed uh, rebel of some sort. Uh, You've got fishermen, you've got betrayers, uh, you've got all kinds of different normal-seeming guys, and these were the ones that Jesus chose to be his first 12 that he would send out on mission. It's also interesting to note, 12 disciples and 12 tribes of Israel. These are sort of like the symbolic representation of Israel and God's continued influence in their lives that he is sending out now to all the people. And then they went out and they did this. They shared this good news and they brought in people who would follow them and they became their disciples who shared the good news to people who became their disciples. They shared the good news to people who became their disciples, so on and so forth up until you. It's just as Jesus said, actually, right before ascending to heaven in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says this, and Jesus, or Matthew says this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there's something simple here that you could breeze right past if you don't notice it. And it's something different than what Jesus says here in Matthew 10 that we're reading today. But when he goes up in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples to continue teaching their disciples that they make. Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see how this becomes like a perpetuating system. So these disciples are supposed to go and teach other disciples to do the same things that they are doing. 
That means that when someone shares the good news, they then uh, make that person into a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and they teach them how to share the good news too. And that system trickles down throughout all of the history uh, across the entire planet until it gets to you. And this message is exactly the same, right? Go therefore, make disciples, and teach them everything. Which means not only are you a part of this chain in the sense that like, it ends with you, but it continues on with you. Which means that when Jesus is speaking these words to the disciples that would later go on and teach everything they had been commanded, he's actually teaching these words to you. Their mission is your mission. Their purpose in life is your purpose in life. The guidance is exactly the same, with one exception. Let's get into that right now. He tells the disciples, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which would be really weird advice to give to you guys today, right? As I go out and make disciples, watch out for Samaritans, though. And you're like, what in the world is a Samaritan? I've never bumped into one, right? Uh, Look out for those Gentiles. You guys all look like Gentiles to me. So uh, maybe you're not. I don't really know. Anyway, this was a time-specific call. Jesus wanted them to go to the Jews first and then later on to the Gentiles. And we know that was Jesus' intention because throughout the Gospels, we even see him interacting with Gentiles. We see him interacting with Romans and Samaritans. And we see him later on telling his disciples that they would interact with them, with these Gentiles and give witness. He says this in Matthew 10, 18. So just a few verses later, he says, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness for them and the Gentiles. Then in Acts, he would unleash his disciples on the whole world. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which is sort of another word for Gentile. Now this role or this way that he rolled out this, uh, this whole plan was not just some sort of like ethnocentric thing, like we're going to prioritize these people first. It was actually the fulfillment of a promise a long time ago that God made to the people of Israel. You can see this in Genesis 12, 1 through 2. God says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is the promise that God made to Abraham, that his people would one day be a blessing to the entire earth. Exodus 19.6, he says something very similar to Moses. He says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you're a kingdom of priests, that doesn't do you much good if there's no one to be sort of a go-between for. That's what a priest was. It was someone that stood in between God and the rest of the people and interpreted God's word to the people, but also brought the people's petitions to God uh, so that he might hear them. That's what a priest functioned as. And so if there are no other people than this one nation of holy priests, then there's no one to be a priest for. So right here, Jesus is saying that the reason why you need to go to the Jews first is because that is fulfilling what I have been promising this entire Old Testament. Now, that's not what he probably called it, but that's what we would call it, right? This entire story of the Old Testament was leading to this place. I have been priming the Jewish people so that they might be the people that hear and know and see me first, that I might come among them, and they might actually fulfill their mission of being a blessing to the whole earth, of being a kingdom of priests, of being a holy nation set apart as my own possession, that they might lead the rest of the world in understanding and knowing my truth. And that's exactly what happened. 
As I said, this was a time-bound kind of directive. The rest of it is for all of disciples throughout the rest of time. So let's see what he actually told them to say. Matthew uh, 10, verse 7 says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. As far as good news messages are concerned, I really love this one. It's kind of mysterious and beautiful. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, at hand is simply a euphemism, meaning close by, right? Like you could say of Danielle that she always has coffee at hand. Like even if it's not in her hand, it is going to be nearby to where she can grab it at need, right? Uh, the, the sort of term actually comes from like weapons. So think about like having your sword at hand doesn't mean that you have your sword in your hand. It means that it's like always so close that you are ready to grab it if you need it. And Jesus here is saying that his kingdom of heaven is that way. By the way, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, just so you don't get sort of confused later, they're words that are used kind of interchangeably throughout the Gospels, heaven being simply the place where God keeps his stuff. So the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, kind of the same thing. And the kingdom, this kingdom, is very, very close. And so you have to ask, if that's the good news, if that's the gospel, as we talked about a few weeks ago, why exactly is that good news? Typically, we would think of another kingdom coming by as bad news, Right? Like if somebody came to you right now and said, hey, there's this other kingdom, you'd be like, so are they conquering us? What is happening here? Right? Like think about like Russians invading Ukraine. They're marching in there and they're like, hey, we know that you guys are Ukraine, uh, but now you are Russia. There is another kingdom at hand. There's another kingdom here. And that's bad news, right? Like they're like, sorry, we know you liked having your own kingdom over here of Russia. Now it is kingdom of Putin. Uh, here's a potato for your reward. That is bad news for everybody, right? That's what's happening. That's typically what we think of when we hear of another kingdom kind of coming at hand. But this is actually good news. It's not a kingdom that is conquering. It's actually a better kingdom that is moving in. I started thinking about it this way this past week. Uh, you can think of it a little bit like Juneteenth, uh, which is a celebration that uh, we as Americans are starting to celebrate more and more often now. Uh, in 1863, this is sort of the history and background of it, Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, forever declaring that there would be no slaves in the Union. This was the, or the problem with that was that it was mid-Civil War, so that really only applied to half of the United States, right? And then in the spring of the 1865, so now we're two years later, the Confederate Army and government surrendered and the Union retook control. And thus in that moment, now everywhere that was under control of this Emancipation Proclamation, slavery was illegal. June 19th was the first day, or Juneteenth, when the very last slaves in Texas were actually made aware of this. So I want you to think about this weird in-between time in which they were existing. All right, so the Confederate Army had surrendered. They had lost. Already this law was on the books that slavery should not exist for two years, and yet they were still living as slaves, I mean, surely they kind of knew, like they heard through, you know, whatever news and rumor sources what was happening, and yet it still took time for this to, like, roll out in their lives. And so basically what is happening is sort of, like, akin to what it would be like for someone to share this good news before Juneteenth came around. So you're, like, coming up to these slaves in Texas, and you're like, hey, did you know that freedom is coming? Did you hear that the Confederations, or the Confederates just surrendered, that there's an Emancipation Proclamation, that our freedom is at hand, it is nearby, the regime or kingdom that used to keep us enslaved is no longer in charge now, and now there is another kingdom that is in charge, and they say, hey, no more slavery. That's good news. 
That is the good news of this kingdom. And the best thing is that the news of this kingdom is actually even better than that. Because the kingdom that the disciples were announcing was saying, hey, not only is slavery to man over, but slavery to sin is over. Not the rule of other human beings changed out for new human beings, but the rule of evil over the world is going to be exchanged with the rule of good and righteousness over the world. They were saying, as the song says, no more let sin and sorrow reign. There is now joy to the world. And this is good news. You know, if you've been in church for a long time, we get really wrapped up in this idea of like, what is the gospel, aka good news, right? And what we like to do when we're faced with that is we like to like boil it down to the simplest common denominator. And I think that's fine, right? Like, I don't think that's problematic. And if you think, if you've been in church for a long time, you probably have an idea of what the gospel is. And I say the word gospel and, you know, these like list of three things or six things pop into your mind, whatever it is. And there's nothing really wrong with that. Man, isn't it easy to lose focus on how good of news it is? Like the world is just so broken sometimes and so messed up. It's difficult to be alive for 10 minutes without being in recognition that there must be something better than this. Like, it's almost like why we write fantasy and literature stories that, like, create this, like, alternative universe. It's why we, like, dream about utopian places. Because as crazy as the world is, our mind still, like, imagines that that is possible. That's why when this good news finally comes to you, you're like, yes, praise God, thank you, I will take it because it is so much better than what the world has offered to me. you don't desire for a better kingdom, then you don't really live with your eyes open. You're not seeing the kingdom that is around you. And I think even more importantly than that, to our friends and neighbors who don't yet know of this kingdom, man, it can feel so foreign and hard to be like, hey, let me tell you a story about this guy that lived 2,000 years ago and you know, his name was Jesus, and I know that you have questions about the validity of the Bible and blah, blah, blah. Like, that could feel like a weird and awkward conversation. Isn't it like a baseline encouraging conversation, especially when your friends are facing hardship, to say, hey, what if this isn't the only world that exists? What if there is a better kingdom than this? What if there is more? And if I know anything about human beings, at least I can speak to my own soul, I'd say that, like, that is good news to someone who is suffering. It may sound trite, it may feel weird for you to talk about, but man, isn't it so much better and more encouraging than platitudes? Like, oh, I'm sorry that happened to you, that must be so hard. They're like, yeah, I know. That doesn't help me at all, right? Hey, what if there was a world where evil wasn't in charge? What if there was a world where goodness and righteousness and justice reigned? What if there was a world where you were forgiven of every single awful and terrible thing you did to contribute to this kingdom of evil? Man, that is good news. is the good news of the kingdom of God. And then you can say, well, that kingdom is nearly here. The kingdom is at hand. See, what the disciples were ushering in here, what they were sharing the news, and this is why this at hand is kind of important, because the kingdom of God is sort of here and not yet here. There's sort of like this idea of the now and the not yet. 
that at Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he actually inaugurated the kingdom in. Like it, it became real at that moment because he conquered sin, death, and hell in that moment. Now he is in charge of the entire universe, and we are awaiting the moment when his kingdom comes to full fruition. That's sort of the now and the not yet, and we live sort of in between. That's why the kingdom is at hand. It is nearby, close enough to where you can experience it, but not close enough to where you can fully actualize and realize it yet. And so what we do in the meantime is we live in the waiting, waiting for this kingdom to come to full fruition, sort of like getting engaged and waiting for the marriage day like, or the wedding day. One day it is going to be all put together. And as we are waiting and as a byproduct of sharing this good news of the kingdom, a byproduct of this work, its corollary is actually showing the kingdom, showing like a little taste, a little teaser of what this kingdom is. Jesus tells them in verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Almost like they're walking around saying to people, Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And people are like, well, how would we know? What would it look like? And then, boom, leprosy, gone. The disciples get to look at them and they say, Hey, well, in the kingdom of God, there's not going to be sickness there. There's not going to be death. Leprosy, that's not in God's kingdom. Demons, that's not in God's kingdom. The IRS, not in God's kingdom. Depression, not in God's kingdom. No room for that there. Olives on pizza, no, not in God's kingdom, right? Now, I added in some of those last ones for my own devices, but that's what I hope for, all right? A better world. That's, a key. that's good news. Anyway, I'm sorry, Jesus. Uh, <clears throat> there was some truth to it, though. The things that the disciples were fixing or undoing were things that don't belong in the kingdom. So you may read this and say, like, man, I haven't seen a leper. Like, I don't know. Josh, you're saying that this advice and this guidance is for me. This is going to give me purpose in life. But there's no lepers around. How am I supposed to cleanse lepers? This is what Jesus is telling them. But instead, what Jesus is saying is that what you are doing is basically bringing the kingdom of God in a small way to bear in someone else's life. When you cast a demon out of them, you are getting that person that much closer to actually experiencing the kingdom of God. So we have to ask, what does that look like in our own day? If there are no lepers around, at least not nearby us, what is that actually going to look like? Now, I do think some of these things actually do still happen in our life. Like, I want to make sure that I'm not making some sort of false dichotomy of like, hey, this was weird back then. No, I believe that the Holy Spirit is still just as active today as he was back then. And so God may be calling you to actually cast out demons. God may be calling you to actually go where the lepers are and cleanse lepers. But more so or just as often in our world today, it means taking something that would not happen in the kingdom and making it reality. So looking around at your world, seeing something that is broken, seeing something that needs fixing, especially in someone else's life and saying, hey, that wouldn't happen in the kingdom of God. What can I do to bring that about in your own life? No one would experience homelessness in the kingdom of God. No one would be subject to abusive power structures in the kingdom of God. There would be no orphans in the kingdom of God. Which is a great example because here's where the kingdom message and the kingdom work actually get connected. And this is something that we're trying to bring about in our own life. Some of us here at Dwell, Sarah and I, a few others, are in the foster care system as foster care parents. Now, uh, we don't have a placement right now, but we do have a family at our church that does actually have a placement right now. And the reason why uh, Sarah and I even got into this thing, 
you know, in case you're wondering, we're sort of like at that point where we've been like approved and we're waiting on a phone call. We got a phone call at the beginning of January. We thought we almost had a kid. If you hear Evie describe it, she goes, uh, we got a phone call about a foster kid, but it went somewhere else. And I was like, you can't call it it. That's terrible. I don't know why, but it's bad, right? Like, uh, so it's, it could happen at any day. We could have like, you know, an extra kid or two tomorrow. Who knows what could happen, right? And here's the reason why we got into this. Not because we're super Christians, I know. Not because we're like the best people ever. Uh, not because, you know, we needed some extra kids to do some work at our house or something like that. None of those are the reasons, especially if the foster system asks. Don't tell them that. Or even that I made a joke about it. It's because we learned things like 90% of children in the foster care system have experienced some form of trauma. 90%, that's absurd. For a child, Youth in the foster care system are seven times more likely than other youth their age to experience depression. And when we started looking into it, we started discovering all the different ways in which these children with no real power, authority, control over their life have just been dealt the most awful hand very often. It's usually very often a result of cycles and years of their parents being dealt the wrong hand, of poor choices, of evil choices being made by someone that has effect for generations to come. And it seems like it's very nearly impossible to break that structure, that system. You know, one of the things we've even learned about foster care system is like, Man, a lot of times it's something really good for the parents to be able to like get their lives back together just for a brief time. They don't have to be worried about just how to get food on the table and get their kid to school so that they can break whatever this cycle is, maybe abuse, addiction, poverty, whatever it is in their own lives. And as we became aware of this happening, this is why we decided to get into this because we thought, well, Jesus calls us here to share the good news of the kingdom Jesus calls us to show the good news of the kingdom by healing afflictions. And we thought, what happens if we were able to say with our lives, no more does the kingdom of abuse reign? No more does the kingdom of neglect rule here. You have a home. You have love. You are wanted and valued, and you have the space that you need to heal from whatever afflictions and evils have been done to you. And here's what I think the best part is, the opportunity to then say to a child, after you've shown that there is another kingdom, to say, hey, this home is not even the best kingdom that there is. It may have been better, but there is an even better one. There is a truer kingdom that lasts forever. The home that you have felt here is but a foretaste of what God has for you. The love that you have felt here pales in comparison to the incomprehensible love of God. Now, I know it sounds all lofty and ideal, and that's probably because we haven't really gotten into it completely yet. I also want to just recognize that foster care is not right for everyone. And I think that's why he actually made, God actually made us so different, made us with different passions, different loves, different energies, different experiences that we've had in our own lives. And I believe, man, if you are really open-handed and honest and ask him, God will show you a way in which you are to bring his kingdom about. You are to show his kingdom to someone else. 
And man, we talked about being lost and sort of needing reorientation earlier. And, and I, I fear that a lot of times when we think about this, our temptation, and I know this is especially true for me, my temptation is like, well, I should just be a little bit nicer to people. And believe me, that is like a good thing for you to do. But the kingdom of God, as it is unfolding in people's lives around them, is showing them things that is on par with cleansing lepers and casting out demons. This is the same kingdom of God that you have been given to show to other people as you go about your daily life. Man, I think we can do so much more than being a nicer person. What would it look like for you to show the kingdom of God to people who are hurting around you? People that are hurting around you may mean some of the least of these. may mean you actually go out and seek people that are hurting the most. In fact, we're going to give you an opportunity to take part in some of that um, later on at the closing of the gathering. Matt's going to talk about it. It might mean actually recognizing the hurt that is happening all around you. So you don't have to just sort of like find the person that is hurting the most in all of the world and go and see if you can help them. Maybe it means a subtle shift in the way that you think about and care for your friends and the people that you love. I don't actually want to talk anymore about it because I want the Holy Spirit to inspire and move each and every one of us to to just ask him open-handedly, open-heartedly how he might encourage us, how he might show us, how we might show his kingdom here on earth. I'm going to trust in the Holy Spirit to guide each and every one of you to where exactly where you need to be, whatever that looks like. Let's move on. <clears throat> now we get down to brass tacks, all right? This is the details section of the job description. Jesus is telling what you're doing. Now he's calling in the HR department to tell you how much you're going to be getting paid. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Well, bummer there. Sorry, the pay is not great, right? Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. This is one of those things that in the American church we get very, very confused about because you're hearing uh, constantly from two different sides, right? Um, one is like, hey, you should be super poor if you're going to follow Jesus, and you should never have any money ever, right? And it's weird because we hear that side, but I don't know that hardly any of us listen to it, right? You're like, you've got like crazy monk people, and they do it, and you're like, well, okay, sure, whatever. And then you've got the other side that's like, well, you know, Jesus said like the, the laborer deserves his food, so you guys ought to buy me a third private jet, you know? Like I got, a, I got places to go, so I need that, you know? And it's kind of a strange thing. It's also strange whenever this actually happens because typically a pastor is up here talking about it, and you got this weird sort of thing where they're like, There's a real temptation in reading this. I know I could speak from experience to be like the laborer deserves his food finance team. I would like a raise, please, right? Like that's what it kind of comes across as. But instead, this is actually a lesson for all of us as believers. The truth, somewhere in the middle, and it is so perfectly Jesus, that to serve him is actually to not worry about your daily physical needs. In fact, he doesn't tell them, he doesn't even bother telling them about amounts or anything like that. He just says you're gonna be taken care of. You received without paying. He tells you you're not going to need to plan on all of this other stuff. You're just going to show up and it's going to be taken care of. It's not a plan to get rich. It's not a plan to get poor. It is a plan to be reliant completely on God. And I think if we're thinking about this correctly, we shouldn't be thinking about this in terms of paid church staff only. 
but instead for all of us going about our lives. In fact, if the first two pieces that I talked about, sharing the kingdom of God and showing the kingdom of God are for all of us, then these terms are the terms under which all of us do this. Jesus here isn't the HR department. He's actually a general sending out his lieutenants. And he's saying that it is strategically important for you. If I'm in charge of what you're going to be doing, it's strategically important for you to focus on the mission, to focus on what I'm calling you to do, share the kingdom, show the kingdom, and let me worry about all the details. Right? Like a frontline soldier is not worrying about where his next meal is coming from because that is taken care of by someone else in the organization. And that's what Jesus says is happening to you. If I am sending you out as my missionaries, I don't want you worried about what you're going, how you're going to provide for yourself. This stuff is not a salary for you to do with what you wish. It is instead a supply stipend so that you can do the work that he's called you to do should change the way that we think about every single thing that we have or own or call our own. What if your job or your salary wasn't something just to put food on the table or something that would make you rich, but it was the means by which Jesus is providing for you to do the work that he is calling you to do? That instead of being at odds, your work for Jesus and your regular, you know, working job, what if they were actually aligned? Thus, as a part of the same group that you are, I am grateful to Denver Public Schools and Slamberger and Chick-fil-A and all of these other places that are generous and kind enough to give to the kingdom of God by supporting for you to be a full-time missionary here in the city of Denver. This changes everything if you allow it to. Here's some quick tweetable thoughts just to chew on. Your salary isn't yours to use. It is a budget given to you for your work that you steward as a servant of God. God is saying, here's the task that I have for you. Share the kingdom, show the kingdom. Here's the money that I'm going to give you to do it. Your money isn't for your joy, your safety, or your control of the universe Those are, in fact, idols. Your money is to cover expenses for the work that you're doing. Giving, then, to dwell church or other kingdom endeavors is not a sacrifice of what is yours. It's actually a strategic allocation of the money that God has given to you to steward. Where you say to yourself, I can't be everywhere in all places, and so I'm going to have to give to this missionary that's going to Kuala Lumpur because people need to know about Jesus there. God has given me this budget to manage, and so I'm going to give some of it to there so that my money will go where the work is being done. So it'll go and actually empower someone else to continue sharing the kingdom of God in somewhere where I can't be. You're saying that I can't do everything best and I can't do everything alone, and so some of my resources are going to need to be allocated elsewhere put into one giant pot so that a church like Dwell Church is able to do what it does here in the city. And I could go on forever, not because we want or need your money, but because God is providing for Dwell through the money of all of the various places where our income comes from, and you can choose to be a part of that or you can choose to miss out on that. That is completely up to you. I could also go on forever because money... And its associates, comfort and security are idols living rent-free in the American soul. 
And Jesus here, rather than making some statement of like, well, if you make this much money, that's too much. If you make this much money, it's too little. Or making some statement about the type of comfort that we have. He's saying, don't you dare let those things become a distraction. Go, do my work. Go out into all of these places. And as you are going, you will be taken care of. Your primary calling is always to show and share this kingdom. And your work is what you do to allow you to do that. I want to conclude with this idea. Man, I feel like if you are uh, like me and feeling disoriented, if you're feeling lost, if you're feeling like you're in a place where maybe you've started slowly sneaking off the path, missing the boat, uh, there can be a temptation to do uh, the sort of standard sermon thing where you walk away and you're like, if you thought I was right at all in any of this, then you're like, oh, snap, now I feel bad about myself. I wasn't doing any of those things. I've been hoarding all of my money. I haven't been showing anyone the kingdom of God. I haven't been sharing the kingdom of God with anyone. And so here's all I want to ask you to do, because this is what I would ask you to do if you were sort of on the right or on the wrong path. First off, you have to like actually turn around and take stock of where you are, right? Like make an honest assessment. There's a temptation not to do this because it's hard or it's difficult, but at the end of the day, this is all that like life is and life is about. Like if we're too scared to ask ourselves these questions, then like what are we even doing? We're just sort of like taking up space until we die, right? So ask yourself this hard question. It requires some turning around. It requires pulling back out the map. It requires asking Jesus what he wants you to do, looking back on ways in which he has moved and changed your life and saying, hey, I want that again, God. And then... What it takes after that is just one small step back in the right direction. You don't have to become the the super Christian that you want to be. You don't have to become some sort of saint tomorrow. But I think uh, the only way that we as human beings can actually get things like this into our minds is to take one small step. Maybe it's one new habit. Uh, In fact, we're about a month out from Lent right now, and that's a really, really fantastic time to cut something out of your life and actually put the kingdom of God in its place. Maybe you're actually, uh, you know, usually if you're like me, Lent kind of sneaks up on you and you're like, oh, snap, it's happening. What am, I, what am I doing, right? What if you actually like took this next month to pray, to read scripture and ask God, what exactly do you want me to do over these days of Lent? What do you want me to do leading up to Easter? Maybe you just need one small tangible thing right now. One small tangible thing to share the kingdom of God would be thinking about that friend that you just saw the other night that was telling you about how terrible and how hard their life is and asking yourself the question, what would it look like to share the gospel, to share the good news of this kingdom, to say, hey, that kingdom of brokenness is not all that there is. There is a better kingdom out there and I can show it to you. Maybe your one small tangible step to show the good news. Maybe you just commit right now blindly. You don't know what Matt's gonna talk about in a second, but you're gonna do it. Wouldn't that be intense, right? I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea. That's on you, right? Uh, but maybe you already know some way in which you want to serve. Uh, maybe you know some way that you want to show the kingdom of God. Maybe you've been feeling that pressure for it for months now, and you just need one little small step, whatever it is. Sign up for that thing. Take that class. Join that group. Find somebody. Give something away. The kingdom of God is multifaceted. 
It would totally revolutionize everything that we think about living on the planet Earth. And so in small ways, it has the power to change every single human being's life, even the people that seem to have it all together. And finally, offer it all to Jesus. I don't really know the small step for this. I don't want to, you know, turn it into like tithe the dwell church or something like that. I think that's a good thing and you should probably do it. But man, if you are a person who feels like they had turned their own salary into an idol instead of a stipend, I think the only small step is to confess and repent that to Jesus and ask God to take control of your budget. Sit down, open up your bank account, open up your budget, ask real hard and serious questions of God, am I doing with your kingdom resources what you would like me to do? And I know that he will be glorified and you will actually be brought joy through that experience in the end. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.